in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Joe Boggs, Assistant Professor with Ohio State University Extension and Ohio State University Department of Entomology. Joe's talk is on maximizing your pest management strategies. It was originally presented at the 2015 ISA International Conference in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> First talk in the morning, I can see everybody's all fired up and ready. There is more coffee out there, too, and I've already had about five or six cups, so that'll kind of help me get through. Boy, this is a rough crowd. <laughs> My first point, people want perfect landscapes, don't they? I mean, that's the goal, you know, that's it, you know. I mean, I don't even have to, you know, I don't have to say it. There's other people who go, yeah, perfect landscapes. But living plants can have pests. We all know that. Things like ambrosia beetles, Japanese beetles, fall webworm. In the spring, you can have eastern tent caterpillar, bagworms in the summer. High-end bagworm, budget bagworm, do-it-yourself bagworm. Killer bagworms is what we worried about. Now, come on, folks. I know I'm the first speaker in the morning. I had to do this. I've got to, you know, a little bit of things to keep everybody awake. But the point is, is the only way to have perfect landscapes was the silk flowers and astroturf, right? That is really something we should make sure that we're making certain our clients focus on this big picture and focus on another big picture. Now, this slide is dated. The data is dated. Probably about 20 years old, believe it or not. However, I was just on with a group of entomologists on a conference call about a month ago, and they said, well, you know, yes, the number of species are probably, of course, greater, obviously, because there's a lot more taxonomists making tenure, you know, so they have to describe species. And no doubt, there are probably a lot more of everything, but they pretty much felt that this ratio still stood, and that is that of this 90,000 described species of insects, in uh, uh, North America, north of Mexico. I realize this is an international conference, but it probably plays out similarly in terms of percentages. Only 6,700 only 6, are pests, meaning that only 6,700 affect food, fiber, structural material, and so forth. Or aesthetics. That's 7.4% of all of the insects. Only 700. 0.07% are serious pests. So what does that really mean? Well, first of all, it really flies in the face of public perception, doesn't it? What is the average person? Just ask them. I mean, you know, you run across an insect, what's the chances it's a pest? I seldom get below 50% on that question. Seldom ever. Most people is even higher. And then, you know, you depress them, you know, well, I don't care, just kill them all, let God sort them out, kind of thing. <laughs> right? But this is important information because if we go after, we're often faced with being asked to use insecticides, right? Which people are very concerned about different types of insecticides because of misperception. Mites and microorganisms probably conform to a similar ratio. Some insects only appear to cause damage. Hickory tussock moth. Despite its common name, we most often see it on oaks, and I had to look hard to find a single caterpillar on an oak causing that, that damage. Big oak tree, and I only found one caterpillar. Was that a serious pest? It does have a history of occasional outbreaks. We'll talk about that. It's a native pest. However, one on a big tree, roly-poly galls. Very few galls cause any type of serious harm to the host. Don't be fooled. That's the main point here. Don't be fooled. Again, it's the first talk of the day. You know, you gotta. <laughs> Don't focus on looks. 
I am a Buckeye. Focus on plant health, that's going to be a recurring theme today. It brings up my second point, and I think this point in terms of, of plant health is very important. There are four historical steps in a pest management program. The historical four-step program, what would be the first step? Identify, outstanding. Now, you know, I know it's early in the morning. There's plenty of coffee around. I'll even take a real quick break if you run out and grab a cup and come back and bring me a cup too. Yesterday, I made, I said, I love audience participation. Some of you are in here, you know where I'm heading, right? I love it so much that you can even mumble. I accept that. You know, if you don't know the answer, mumble. And you'll mumble loud. There were some good mumblers yesterday. They really belted out. We've elected people in less than that, haven't we? <laughs> oh, I think that, I, I agree with that idea. So the first step is, in fact, identify the pests. Second step, devise a pest management strategy, monitor results, and adjust and revise the pest management strategy to maximize results. This is taken from materials on pest management. Frankly, that's the cart before the horse. If you look at plant health, and if you think about even how we manage our own health. But it is kind of correlated to something else we teach a lot about, and which we do want people to do. Integrated pest management, we have these different strategies, these different tactics, and we do want people to monitor. But there is a very important point relative to putting the cart behind the, the horse. I call it the new improved. What would be the first step? Then I've given you all the clues on a new improved, a four-step effective pest management program. Not monitor. Well, monitor's not bad. I like that, actually. Plant-resistant varieties, he's kind of on the right track. All good mumbling over there, I heard it. Right plant, right place kind of fits into that. What is right plant, right place? What is that about? It's about health. It's about health. So the first step is support good plant health. This is common sense pest management, isn't it? You all knew that. You were on the right track. You know, right plant, right place, all of that, because this goes to another triangle that is a, you know, common sense triangle. This is nothing brand new. We're calling it the horticultural triangle. Proper plant selection, right plant, right place. She just said it. Proper installation, proper maintenance, and you have a healthy plant. Nothing on that triangle is new to anyone in the room, is it? No, no. We all know this. Do we all practice it? Sometimes we try to, at least being aware is very important. At least being aware is very important. An extreme example when things go wrong. This is now a bagworm resistant blue spruce because it's dead. Yeah, I mean, you're thinking, oh my God, it's eight in the morning, don't do this to us, Joe. A short segue. Somebody looked away, what? <laughs> what is the number one pest in the world? Outstanding, you got it. I didn't have to give you a hint. Digital mushrooms up there. What do you think of that? Yeah. <laughs> Great place to mount those. Lepidopterus compressus, caterpillar damage. <laughs> Let it ripple through a little bit, you know. You've all seen that, you know. Oops, I'm sorry. You've all seen this. It makes you feel this way, doesn't it? Those are, I like this one. Like, what? I mean, you see that. <laughs> I mean, that's just. You don't want to inherit that. Aqua minimus, too late. Look at this. Look at this. It, this already has physiological leaf scorch. You wait to that and then put the, the, the watering bags on, right? Too late. Aqua maximus. Okay, we want to water this blue spruce, so let's put it next to the overflow of the pool. Yeah, some of you have seen this. It just makes you want to cry, doesn't it? Other landscape disasters. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Quercus disastrous. Solus media. Topper Zara showed up. This is the bottom of the tree. That's the top of the tree. You know where that tree's headed? It's going to the flower hospital or emergency room, right? You know that. Topus deconstructus. Variety phone polius. Look, I had to label the tree. <laughs> Some people would know what's the tree. Yep. Kind of makes you want to do that, doesn't it? Do I need to say this out loud? Mulchus volcaniasis. <laughs> the, the, the Romans had a way with words, didn't they? 
Just makes you wish trees could get even, doesn't it? <laughs> Jeez. Support good plant health. This is normal, is it not? This is normal fall needle drop. In the fall, we, uh, conifers, many different conifers, depending on the, the species as to which needles they drop. Sometimes it's last year's needles, sometimes it's two-year needles, three-year's needles. That's actually related to the species, right? Colorado blue spruce, is that normal? No, it's not, absolutely. So what's going on? Case study, Colorado blue spruce. We're talking about plant health, plant health. Doesn't look right, doesn't look quite right. If you look even closer, you can see that, well, it's not spider mite injury. That's one thing. It's not rhizosphere needle cast. That tends to be purplish. Sometimes, though, if you say there's banding, people automatically think of a disease. But this is a little different banding. If you look close, it's chlorosis, green, chlorotic, yellow, green, yellow. It's, it's a very odd banding. So what's going on here? What would you do if confronted with this type of a situation? What would be your first thing to do? Outstanding. Well, look at the base. That's good. Look at the plant. Assess to make sure there's not a vascular disruption. Because what are you suspecting here? Come on, say it out loud. Some type of a nutrient deficiency. That's probably what you'd be expecting. So there could, it's on the older growth, so it's some type of nutrient that maybe is easily translocatable between old growth and new growth. Okay, so you're kind of on that track, but you're not sure exactly which one because there are actually several mobile nutrients. But I like what, some, what he said here. First thing is take a look to see if there's any disruption in the vascular flow because nutrients don't just fly up into the tree, do they? They have to go into solution. So they have to be in a form that go into solution. They could be locked up by pH, both high and low, by the way. We sometimes talk too much about high pH. Low pH can cause different chemical reactions that can lock, lock nutrients up in soils, most often high pH. It could be a problem with the roots. It could be there's no water. It could be you have a stem canker. Do you see where I'm heading? So you need to look to see if there's another disruption. And then you need to consider using x-ray vision in the form of a soil probe. That's what happened here. So the soil test was taken. Now I'm blowing this up to just show some key points. Now this is in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that really surprised me, frankly. Our pH tends to be towards the alkaline because we have two types of, of calcium carbonate sources. What is calcium carbonate? What's another name for it? Come on. Limestone. There's also, somebody should say calcite. Calcite's the crystalline form of calcium carbonate, so it's the same thing in terms of soil chemistry. We have both. We have limestone and we have calcium carbonate, so the soils can tend to be high in pH. Well, look at this. Low in phosphorus, low in manganese, and low in zinc. Hmm. Don't know which one's causing the problem. What would we need to do next? Well, baseline data would be good, but that's not tissue. Thank you. You were in <laughs> he was in the diagnostic word. That's a don't cheat. Come on, that's it. Take out the you would. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. I was thinking that anyway. That's right. Bring the pruners out and do a tissue sample. Soil test, tissue analysis. The two go together in terms of diagnostics. Now this was interesting to me. Look at this. So there was a phosphorus deficit in the soil, but the tree was making up for it. Does everybody see that? And plants are capable of doing that. So just because you have a phosphorus deficit in the soil does not necessarily mean that translates into a deficit in the foliage. But look at the manganese. Very, very low. In fact, the number should be very, 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 very low. Zinc, okay, it's also low. But which one of these then would you suspect is the cause of the problem? Manganese, exactly. Manganese deficiency. We often look at our red maples doing that, and, and, and I hear people automatically assume it's high pH, particularly in my area. It is a manganese deficiency, and you will hear people commonly say high pH, interrupting with or interfering with the availability of manganese. It's in the soil, but it's not available. Now, if you believe without a soil test and without tissue analysis, that is because the manganese is locked up 
because of high pH, what might you do to release the manganese? You might apply something like a sulfur to, re to release it. And let's say you do that and you don't get much response. Well, gosh sakes, okay, I'm gonna add some manganese and add some more manganese and so on and so forth. And then let's say you drop the pH again. Or let's say you don't drop the pH, whatever you've used, like sulfur, takes time to work and suddenly the pH drops. Now that manganese becomes free. When you get a chance, go online and read about manganese toxicity in plants. It is very devastating and very difficult to diagnose. And I suspect we see much more of it than we are aware of because of what I just said. It's rare to have manganese deficient soil, folks. It is actually pretty rare to have manganese deficient soil. In the Midwest, I should say, Northeast, and parts of the Southeast. But if you're gonna go away from this talk today, for example, and say, well, I have inner needle yellowing on blue spruce. Rex is gonna follow up with talking about diagnostics, so we'll get even more into this. Recommendations, you gotta be careful. Base your recommendations on real data. Same with, the, the, you know, with oaks and everything. We talk about iron chlorosis. All this stuff fits with this favorite quote that I love to use from Shakespeare. And many strokes, though, with a little ax, hew down and fell the hardiest timbered oak. Isn't that a great, you know, nutrient deficiencies are little axes. I mean, you drive around and see chlorotic trees, right, all the time. You have clients you've been working with, and they're still, the, they're still alive, your clients and the trees, right? But they're not doing well. If there's a nutrient deficiency, it means that tree is under stress. Poor cultural practices lead to say hello to my little friends. All these boars up here only go after stressed trees. And that brings me to the boring part of my presentation. Somebody in back said, too late. <laughs> All tree boars are not equal. Let's start off there. Now, I, this is a bit of a repeat because I actually presented this last year at this conference. Uh, I developed it actually partially for this conference, and this is just an idea that we talk about this idea. We do it all the time with our, our clients, right? We talk about tree stress, we talk about trees, we talk about boars selecting trees, but it seemed to me like it was a good idea. Let's put this on paper, let's graphically depict it. Everyone in the room, because you're here, should be able to recognize a live tree and differentiate it from a dead tree, right? <laughs> and this isn't winter. So let's start there, pretty clear. But I think everybody in this room also knows that it becomes a little less clear as you move towards stress, doesn't it? Stressed, I mean, you know, a tree just doesn't automatically start showing. Usually by the time we really see overt symptoms, we're moving towards dying, right? Stress may be, uh, well, maybe nutrient deficiency, it may be the physiological leaf scorch, but for trees to respond to stress, sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes, it, they liked it over there. Sometimes it's more, more subtle. So what is a good indicator that trees are stressed and slipping further to the right on this continuum? A great indicator. Well, sudden leaf drop, that's good, but that may be even further, but what is a natural? What's that? Growth increments. I like, that's great. That's Rex on the diagnostics. We talk about that, you know, looking at growth rates. Actually, there's a very natural one right here. If our native bores show up, it means the tree is either stressed, dying, or dead. Because our native bores don't go after live and healthy trees. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons, not just, they're not just emitting things saying I'm, I'm defenseless, but they're also defenseless. And so these borers are not dumb. They sit around and oh, look at Clyde over there, let's go visit. They go after trees because they co-evolved together. The pests and the host co-evolved. And there's been this constant warfare. The tree does something, the borer overcomes it, the tree does something else. It all comes down to a healthy tree can defend itself. And by the way, just so you don't, you know, I'm gonna put this in motion to say not all bark beetles go after dying trees, and not all metallic wood borers only go after stress trees. You notice what I did there? I just flipped those to make sure you, and our native longhorn beetles, 
dying to dead trees. Now our native longhorn beetles typically don't go after just stressed trees. When you have longhorn beetles hitting a tree, that tree is in major trouble. We can say that pretty much in, in, as a generality. So our native borers is stressed to dying to dead trees. Very important, which means tree health management, tree borer management. Think about that. What's the first step in a pest management program? Healthy plants, because that translates to the need not to cause. Now, we can, here's a real life example. I slid this native longhorn beetle over to the left, so we want to emphasize it. This is a landscape berm compacted to the same bulk density as an earthen dam. <laughs> Some of you don't know that. They are. How do you think these spruce and other conifers are draining? What do you think about soil drainage there? There's nothing. There's nothing. It's a clay pot. Well, and you know, if you're working with a client and you say, well, I think it's a drainage issue. What's going to be their response? But it's on a hill. What I tell them is take a clay pot, you know, and cover the hole up, put a cork in the hole, water it, and then pick the pot up and see if it helps with water drainage. If there's nowhere for it to go, it doesn't matter, right? Picture that in your mind. So in this planting, say hello to my little friends. There's one of the native longhorn beetles, probably a sawyer. Sawyer beetles, longhorn beetles, the name comes from the larvae making noise that sound like they're sawing because of their mandibles inside the tree, kind of interesting. And you see this characteristic kind of excelsior-like frass. That was taken from one of those spruce there because those trees were in trouble because of location because of right plant, wrong place. Bottom line, reduce stress. A white Russian can work. If you're in Colorado, you can do other things. <laughs> what about these two insects? What's the deal there? Why am I putting them over live and healthy? Because those are non-native pests. The top one is the emerald ash borer, the bottom is Asian longhorn beetle. That means, frankly, you know, I could slide them. They will stop attacking a tree once it's moving towards dead. They'll continue to attack it until they, but they won't attack dead trees. I actually should highlight live and healthy, live of stress, dying trees. And that's an issue because they are non-native. The trees have no defenses. Our native trees have no defenses. So keep that in mind. So uh, emerald ash borer, when it finds a live and healthy ash tree, it can very quickly convert it, depending on population density, to a dead tree. And of course, that's horrible, isn't it? That's just what we think. Oh my God. <laughs> so does this only apply to borers? No, good for you. So let's go to the tree disease health continuum, Botrysphaeria canker of ash. Botrysphaeria canker is only going to show up with stressed ash trees. But there's a bit of a challenge with this, and that is the infection can actually happen much earlier. It's called a latent infection. It means the fungus is already in the tree, but the symptoms do not appear until the tree is stressed, and you get this flagging. In this case, it was caused because we were experiencing a drought, both in Ohio and Kentucky. But here's a question to you then, if you're treating for emerald ash borer, will that prevent that disease from appearing? No. And that's important for you to tell your clientele. Emerald ash borer treatments are for what? Emerald ash borer. It will not protect a tree against verticillium wilt. Uh, it will not protect against other problems that have been killing ash for a long time, for example. And you need to make sure that people know that. Second step, what's the second step? Identify the pest, the diagnosis. That's easy identification, right? I mean, Japanese beetles, even if the beetles aren't there, the skeletonizing, you can see that, pretty easy. A little more difficult, isn't it? What caused that? And your answer should be, well, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> crickets, crickets caused it. Yes, it could. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> Rocky Mountain locusts. It's extinct, but it'd be nice to see them again, wouldn't it? <laughs> About all you can say, it's a defoliator. Yeah, you might suspect maybe a caterpillar. If you look closely, you probably can't see it, but there's some eggs up here. But beyond that, if the, if the insect isn't there and you don't have anyone there to question, well, you know, you're kind of stuck a bit. Bark beetles feed on the phloem as larvae. 
Ambrosia beetles go right into the xylem. They both make the same size holes, basically, because they're very closely related. Which ones, what would you have to do to differentiate, the, the find out really what's happening here? Outstanding. So which one is it? It's ambrosia beetles going right in. So identification, identification can sometimes, you know, be a little, take a little more than just, just looking at what's right there. What's the third step? Separate the serious from the not so serious. You see where we're heading with this. Have we talked much about actually making an insecticide application or anything like that? Have we talked about it? No, we haven't. We haven't even gotten there yet. Because these are all the steps you need to do. Sort things out. All pests are not equal. The first group, plant will th survive and thrive without intervention effort. So group one, we're going to separate into three groups. Group one, that's no problem, is it? Well, let's be a little careful there. Did I say the plant's going to be perfect? And what are we basing it on? We'll survive and thrive. Is there anything about looking good? Now, you know, frankly, this also applies to humans, doesn't it? I mean, I go to a doctor, I don't expect for him to say, well, you, you're probably healthy, you look good. Thank God he doesn't base it on that. <laughs> aphids, or if you're affluent, aphids. The most commonly cited landscape passed by homeowners in every survey for years and years. Aphids, aphids. They are the meat items. They're the meat items. That's a lady beetle. They're meat items. There's a predator. Think the same thing. Some of the larvae look like miniature alligators, so there you go. Aphids. We have very few, if any, aphids that cause any serious great harm to landscape trees. Would you agree with that? It's true. They can look bad. You can get a lot of honeydew. You can get a lot of excitement. But what are we assessing this based on? Tree health, not looks and Galls, same idea, very few galls, even galls caused by plant pathogen. Very few do we really get concerned about. But somebody has a juniper with these giant orange things coming out, looks like from outer space, and you know, you're tempted when you're asked, right? You know, well, you know, we do have uh, Area 51, you know. <laughs> Catawba hornworm, for example, native pests in general, we don't tend to worry about, but they can be huge defoliators, great defoliators. They're the different color forms. That's because with our native pest populations, they tend to do this. And actually, I need to lengthen this out. They tend to get, the populations tend to rise and then fall. Rise is called an outbreak. We've all seen outbreaks with our native pests. It's like they're not going to occasionally cause problems. Limiting factors causing the crash are such things as food. That's a big limiting factor. So for example, these yellow-necked caterpillars, you can see they've run out of food there. And so they've just stepped out of their exoskeletons and left. Actually, that's not what's happened. They've molted, then moved on. But the point is, is if a defoliator completely defoliates all of its trees, what's it going to do? It's going to be in trouble. It's going to, its populations are going to crash. Also, what I call the three Ps, predators, parasites, and pathogens. I love that. Three Ps, predators, parasites, parasitoids, and pathogens. Back to Catawba hornworms. These are parasitoid wasp cocoons. They're not eggs. This caterpillar was dead about two hours after I took the shot. The female wasp earlier on had laid her eggs, a single wasp laid her eggs using her ovipositor, which if it's a honeybee, what do we call that? Or a wasp, what do we call that? Stinger, ova, egg, layer. Put the eggs in there, the larvae fed around. Now it's interesting, as the larvae were developing of this parasitoid, and the reason I'm using that word and not parasite, is because this is a, like a lion inside that caterpillar. Parasites tend not to kill their hosts. Did you ever think of that? In fact, that's the definition of a successful parasite, doesn't kill the host. Well, we want beneficial insects to kill their host, don't we? This is gonna kill its host. 
Those caterpillars, or those immature wasps, they're pre-programmed not to eat anything that will kill their host until they're just about done, about to pupate. Then they come to the surface, but before they come to the surface, they strip the caterpillar out. That caterpillar was basically hollow because the parasitoids are done with them. Predator, except that's a paper wasp. You're thinking, paper wasp? Well, what does that paper wasp feed its young? Meat. Meat. And where does it get its meat? It goes and flies and finds a caterpillar. Look at that one chewing up. I just got, I was very lucky this shot. It's even eating the poor parasitoid. It's like, no, no, we're another wasp. <laughs> we're friendly, we're friendly. Friendly fire, oh my God. Grinding it up to take it back and feed to its offspring. All right, so the three P's cause the crashes as well as running out of food. Scarlet oak sulf, a slug saw fly. We got samples and used them in our diagnostic workshop not far from here. So this is a, an East Coast challenge. Uh, you see these, lar these uh, larvae, and these are not caterpillars, and they're not slugs. They are a sawfly that are related to wasps. Very interesting, as they get closer to pupating. This is really funny. Look, at I didn't do this with Photoshop. Looks like they have sunglasses on. Man, we're, we're the cool sawfly. <laughs> they can be very damaging. They are native, though. They can do this. They cause a skeletonizing. This is southern Ohio, 1998. We had a substantial outbreak. Three years ago, up in the Cleveland area, there are pockets where people were pretty excited, a substantial outbreak. And that's important to use those words. Two to three generations per season. Most damage, as always, with any insect with more than one generation, the, ge the damage tends to build with each generation. So the third generation is really bad. Why would BT not work? Good mumbling, I heard it. Because... <laughs> Because this is not a caterpillar, and we do not have a BT strain that will take out Hymenoptera, the wasp, the sawflies. So that's why it wouldn't work. But this is very important, and important to be able to tell your clientele that these native pests rise and fall, rise and fall. This is just taken this past spring. Uh, I and a colleague of mine, Jim Chatfield, and we even met Jim over the years. We were giving a talk, uh, a pesticide applicators talk in Maryland, not far from the Antietam battlefield. 1862, huge battle there. Um, and you can see, you know, there's a big battlefield. That's Burnside Bridge. Took him three times to get across that because they kept going off in the water. They weren't reading the map, you know. No, I'm sorry, that was a bunch of guys, you know. Well, where's this bridge? <laughs> bloody, <laughs> bloody lane. I shouldn't laugh. This is a horrible battle. And then, but look what we saw: eastern tent caterpillar outbreak. It was substantial. Look at these trees. There's Jim down there. Oh my God. Yeah, that's what I say. Look at that. And even the statuary. This poor Union soldier. Look at this. Man, and if you stood there very long, it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you had to keep moving. Let me tell you. Look at this. Now you see why this can is set up. Look over here at this tree. You know, you get right. <laughs> but eastern tank caterpillar is a native pest that rises and falls. You don't want an entomologist to ever be excited on your property or on your client's property. I mean, we were running around like, oh my gosh, there were other people, you know, hell, oh, this is terrible. You know, it's awful. No, we never did. We've never seen this before. They were coming from Ohio just to see this. Group two, impossible problem. Plant will not thrive or, or survive, thrive or survive, and this is important, with the application of the best available intervention efforts. Now, it could be that your company doesn't have something that is available then to, let's say, for example, that, uh, that you want to control a certain insect and you have to inject into trees. You don't have that material or the injectable or anything like the equipment. That's what I'm talking about there. Best available intervention efforts. But frankly, this is a give up the ghost thing. Certain bark beetles, by the time you see that, you're done. Certain bark beetles. Here's a case study, American Elm. This is American Elm actually at Spring Grove Cemetery and Arboretum. And it wasn't selected for being resistant to Dutch elm disease, but we believe it is naturally resistant because all the American elms in the vicinity here were taken down by Dutch elm disease and this just keeps plugging along. And we now know we have these resistant American elms, resistant to the Dutch elm disease fungus, right? And they're being planted everywhere. Valley Forge, so I got a call from a very good arborist saying he had a Valley Forge American elm, 
Joe, you got to come out and look at this because I'm very concerned. It has bark beetles. So I went out and looked, and oh my God, look at that. That's pretty classic for a young elm to be succumbing to Dutch elm disease, recently planted elm. Sure enough, I got there and all the ooze, didn't want to see that, didn't want to see that. Took home the beetles, identify them, scolitis, multistriatus. That is one of the main carriers of the fungus. Hmm, what was going on here? Well, he's going to point. Adaptation, maybe. Well, it turns out, first of all, let's go back. This tree, when we were stepping up, was like stepping on a swamp. Turns out, the owners of this tree were so thrilled with it, they were, well, the guy, when he got home from work at night, was watering it. It was newly planted. And when his wife got up in the morning, she was watering it. <laughs> they actually should have taken the tree out and put in rice. <laughs> so now what do you suspect is going on? All right, so just to be sure, we took, sent samples to our clinic, tested for Dutch elm disease, negative. Tested for verticillium wilt, because remember, it, what, is, what are these resistant trees resistant to? Dutch elm disease, the fungus that causes Dutch elm disease. Only that fungus, not the beetles. So the conclusion, the bark beetles were behaving like bark beetles, they were attacking a dying tree. Don't forget, that's how they make a living. Native bark beetles, that's how they make a living. Tree health management is tree borer management. Group three, solvable problems. The plant can survive and thrive if intervention efforts are focused on do I need to read the rest of that? Starting place, increasing plant health. So the goal with pest management is not looks, it's to increase plant health. Does everybody catch that? Emerald ash borer. Well, we all know that if you don't treat these trees to protect them, well, plant health kind of goes to the sidelines, except you still need to consider plant health. Every ash, should every ash be treated? If you're working with a client and, you, and they have 20 ash trees on their property, should they all be treated? Rex is shaking his head, that's good. Come on, the rest of you. And you will have, for those that are in the area outside of where emerald ash borer's really ramping up, you're gonna be pressured on this to treat every tree. But you should, as a professional, start with, well, now let's assess whether or not these trees should be treated. Does everybody hear what I'm saying there? If the trees are already having other problems, there's no point to it. Plus, it's going to be a cost. So maybe the trees towards the front, rather than those trees all the way in the back, you have to use binoculars to enjoy. See what I'm trying to say? But we do know unequivocally insecticides can protect ash trees. We know this through multiple amounts of research and so on. Plant can survive and thrive if intervention efforts focus on increasing plant health, in this case, keeping it healthy. Adjacent streets in, in uh, Toledo, I should, Dr. Dan Herms, I need to have this labeled. These are his images with Ohio State University entomology. Treated trees, not treated. Adjacent streets, very stark. But the point is full canopies, not killing every beetle. That's important, we're not trying to eradicate. There could be a five or 10% infestation rate in those trees, but who cares? Who cares as long as the canopy's full, right? Who cares? But you can't wait till ash trees look like this to treat, why not? Because the vascular system is gonna be destroyed. If you try to treat those trees, all you're gonna be left with, quite frankly, are, are ash holes. It's true, I mean, you have to stump grind them, and what were you thinking there? If you're interested, this is when I talked about, uh, you know, the eff effectiveness of the insecticides. This is the second edition of insecticide options for protecting ash trees from emerald ash borer, multi-university uh, input on this, and um, it's available on this website, which is emeraldashbor.info. You can remember that pretty easily, all one word. Okay, the fourth step, devising a multi-tactic, now this is important, a multi-tactic management strategy targeting the serious pests. Why not just one tactic? 
In the case of Emerald Ash Borer, that's even multi-tactic because I would hope if you initiate treatments, you do not forget all the things you need to do to, treat that, to keep that tree healthy. They all go together. It's not just treatment. It's also all the other healthcare things that you need to apply to keep that tree healthy. So we're gonna talk a bit about integrated pest management for the next two hours. Lock the doors. <laughs> Actually, I've got, what, 10 minutes, is that right? Oh, good, I'm, I'm. So integrated pest management. Now, last year, you might remember, I gave a talk on, on intelligent pest management, IPM changed to intelligent pest management. And I reviewed the fact that this has been around for over 60 years, uh, this concept. And there are many different models for IPM. I just happen to kind of like this triangle because it looks kind of a, easy to remember where you were multi-tactic, chemical combined to culture with biological with the seat being, and I like what the gentleman set up here, monitoring, like a three-legged stool. I kind of like that, I sort of like it. But let's talk about the application. Fall webworm, another native insect. Remember though, for those in the talk yesterday, this is causing great harm in China, where it's called the American white moth because it's not native and it has no natural enemies over there. Over here though, we can have some pretty substantial nests. And we have two different uh, uh, biotypes, black-headed and red-headed. Kind of important to tell the difference, believe it or not. The feeding behavior, though, is the same between the two. The caterpillars only consume leaves that are enveloped by in, within their webbing. So that's the rule. Second rule is the females that emerge from that nest, if it's a first generation nest, will lay their eggs usually very close to that nest. And the new caterpillars, the next generation, will further expand the first generation nest. So nests tend to get bigger, except that really mostly applies to the red-headed race. The black-headed biotype tends to keep nests sort of small. We have the black-headed types, for example, in southern Ohio. Northern Ohio has the red-headed biotypes. As we drove south, because there's, there's a fall webworm all the way down 75, it was a wonderful drive. I found mostly the black-headed biotypes, which is interesting, so I'm not sure what that means. But you may encounter the red-headed biotypes. In nesting behavior, there's the black-headed. Look at this. This is over about 10 feet long, communal nest. So they can get to be pretty big. This is encasing the tree trunk. So they can get to be pretty big. What about management of this, though? Well. You could spray, you could, you, uh, biological control definitely, that's gonna be natural because there's over 23 different three Ps that can take these out because it's a native insect. But the more direct approach is if you find these very small nests in the spring, or in the, in the uh, summer rather, early summer, first generation nests, even though they're called fall webworm, I should say this, there's at least two generations, sometimes three in the south. So we see the big nest in the fall, and that, that's the common name. Small nest, there's your IPM management tool. You approach the nest, and that's what they see. That's the last thing they ever saw. Just pull them out, pull them out, and do the caterpillar dance. If you're squeamish, there's a, the other tool. Red-headed pine sawfly, a lot of sawflies that feed in colonies. The direct approach, once again, the direct approach, very good, very helpful. Redhead pine sawfly. You could knock them off as a colony in a bucket of soapy water, they'll sink, they'll drown. Another fun option. There you go. <laughs> the last thing they ever saw. These two IPM approaches, I should say, you know, this and the foot, so far no populations of any pests has ever become resistant to that. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> That's important. If they ever do, I'm leaving the country. <laughs> All right. All right, so the preventative approach. This is a very important preventative approach. And we're going to back to the IP, or this uh, plant health triangle and talk about proper maintenance. And we're gonna focus all the way back on this tree bore, tree health continuum at the native metallic wood borers. Now watch the name change with the native metallic wood borers. We're gonna talk about the flat-headed apple tree borer, or as my good friend and colleague Dave Shetler in, at Ohio State calls them, the flat-headed will attack any stress deciduous tree borer. 
We wish it wasn't called apple tree because that makes people think it's only a fruit pest. This thing will go after just, I mean, it has a huge host range. So I was called to a hospital, a new hospital, and they said, Joe, these trees are, they're oozing this material and it stinks. What is that material coming up, bubbling out of the tree? What do I call that? Slime flux, good, slime flux. But it didn't stink. Slime flux is, you know, what is this stuff? Well, there's two different uh, uh, sources for it. It could be a wound that hasn't closed, or if trees are stressed, for reasons we really do not understand, particularly young trees, you will get this slime flux occurring, and you get the same type of thing with fermentation. It actually smells kind of sweet. It's fermented materials. There's even a little bit of alcohol in there, which attracts insects. You know, we had wasps, we had flies. You don't want hornets coming up and getting drunk. You know, they're like the motorcycle gang. You know, it's like little black jackets and <laughs> you know, brawling and. Uh. So it was interesting because okay, okay, but look, look at this coming out of these tree planters, new installed, newly installed. And what was stinking wasn't the slime flux, but it stunk there. I mean, it was, and that's not good for a hospital parking lot, right? Look at that stuff. What was happening? Well, you know, I checked. But <laughs> what was happening was they were trying to balance the irrigation system. They were running it every day. Now, those tree wells, I checked. I had my sole probe. You know, I checked, very good organic matter, maybe a titch too high, but it was being constantly waterlogged. What happens when you put organic matter underwater? Good, you get anaerobic, anaerobic decomposition down at the bottom of a lake. When a lake turns over, that can be a problem. Down at the bottom. So that's what was happening, and there's all this white material, it's probably sulfurous compounds, and it did stink. It did stink. So, Numerous flathead apple tree borers. Why were they coming there? Well, pretty simple. High organic matter, too much water, overwhelmed drainage. The point here is the borer was not the primary problem. It was a stress-related problem. The trees may not be saved if you do not address that issue first. It did turn out that they did do a, a, a thank goodness when I arrived. I actually took that picture, the first picture, just from my car. I pulled up. It looked over and there was that flat-headed apple tree board. I didn't have to get out. You could hear the giggles. <laughs> More trouble, newly planted maples, poor planting, and there they are showing up. This is often mistaken for other things, like a cankering disease. If you look at it like that, flat-headed apple tree bore, causing great harm because of stress. How about the chemical approach? Well, these are very powerful, very powerful, but treat them like the big guns. When you fire those guns off, though, you may hit something that you didn't intend to. Always consider that. Always consider that with your insecticide choices. Sometimes, though, you have to use the big guns. I get all my information at the checkout counter at Kroger's, right? Hey, you don't believe me, do you? Look at this. <laughs> Sometimes you have to bring out the big guns. So I'm going to finish, actually, I'm going to go two minutes, with one that this is a non-native calico scale. Look at this tree in 2014, same tree, different angle, by the way. Unfortunately, I had to take a different angle, 2015. Let me go backwards. This is a sucking insect, taps into the phloem. And if populations get high enough, you can get serious dieback. 2014, same tree, 2015. You can just see the, the pattern. Now, I also want you to know something else. Great spot for trees, right? <laughs> so I don't think it's a primary killer. I think it goes with something else, with the stress. Wide host range, you can find on all kinds of different things. As a matter of fact, just look at this host list, and it is a non-native. Prolific honeydew producer. You see coming from the adults, dropping on everything, then gets colonized by black sooty molds, a real challenge. Look at this picnic table on this hawthorn. See the blackened area, that's all. The females, and this is important, I want you to notice what happens right here, because this is where sometimes arborists up in my neck of the woods have gone uh, off track. In the spring, those are healthy females and they are now laying eggs. As soon as they lay eggs, they die. 
Now, if you made an insecticide application and then it started looking like that, what might you think? You killed them. Exactly. And unfortunately, that's been happening quite a lot. They're dying of natural causes. They're dying of natural causes. Those eggs hatch, the crawlers go off, settle through the summer on the underside of the leaves and tap into the, the vein and that's where. Now in 2014 we did a calico scale study uh, at, uh, in my neck of the woods and unfortunately, and this is a complete shock and surprise, only the formulated bifenthrin called onyx was effective. Uh, Dinotafurin um, Safari surprised the heck out of lost money on that one, quite frankly. Did not work. That's very unusual because our other soft scales, Safari and imidacloprid, uh, clothianidin, the other neonicotinoids, have been very effective. We don't know. But you, if you do want to control this, it's going to unfortunately have to be topical based on our data and it's going to have to target those crawlers on the inside of the leaves. We're getting close to the end, believe it or not. Some final points before I leave. I, I, this is one of my favorite quotes. The true voyage of discovery lies not in finding new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Nothing that I taught today, except maybe some of the examples, was new to you, was it? Seriously. Think about it. You've been practicing this for years. You know, you already know, the first step in pest management is support good plant health. That has been the cornerstone of the ISA forever. You also know that you need to identify, you know that you need to separate, not all pests are the same, and you've known about IPM for quite some time. So this is not new, this is not new. Common sense pest management. Your pest management decisions should be crystal clear when viewed through the lens of common sense. I don't think I've taught anything else but that today, right? And that's the end. This concludes Joe Boggs' talk on maximizing your pest management strategies. To learn more about pest management, you can find additional materials at the ISA Web Store, including the book Pest Management in the Landscape by Chris Lulie and Best Management Practices, Integrated Pest Management by P. Eric Wiseman. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, visit the ISA online store and select online CEU quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need challenge traditional skills and modern techniques whatever language you speak you have a world to offer every day climb with the isa